I would invite you to turn in your Bibles to Luke, Luke's Gospel 19. I know we've been in Matthew, I'm not confused, but we're going to Luke this morning with a Palm Sunday sermon that I think is timely for us in where we are as a culture. I want to also um, greet those who are joining us by live stream. Um, thankful for those who, uh, who either live stream in nationally or uh, locally in our state, uh, because the message needs to get out. Uh, The sense of Palm Sunday and the way that Luke accounts for the parade at Jesus' entry into Jerusalem is such a timely word for our culture. There's a lot of sort of, I don't know, debriefing that's going on in my mind over the last couple years. I mean, the, all the stuff that hit with the coronavirus, with isolation, with not being able to do what we just did without pressure from the government, society, rules, and regulations. Even every time I go into the grocery store and I go in maskless, uh, it's just different now. And I'm not trying to comment one way or the other in terms of being um, courteous to people and careful with, uh, with the virus but I am trying to say there is a, there's sort of a breath of fresh air these days in terms of being able to just commune with people, to, to live life with people, to enjoy fellowship with people, to, uh, to rejoice with people, also to gather like we did Monday and grieve with people. We, we are a community that is enjoying freedoms that perhaps uh, were constricted on ideological turf that we either agree with or don't agree with. Um, there was a lot. There, there was a lot going on even before the the COVID um, dimension. There was the cities were burning. Do you remember people were courting off um, cities and claiming their own turf and saying this is mine and this is what's happening? There was the hue and cry of defund the police and anti-authority sentiment. All of this is uh, what our culture easily gets swept into and fascinated by and engaged in. There's now the social justice warriors that is uh, a movement that is inside the church, um, a do-gooding movement to try to do some kind of penance for ways that we've gone wrong. And all of this is where these cultural trends um, kind of pick up and and drop off and pick up and drop off and, and gain momentum and lose momentum in culture. Well, this same dynamic happens with Jesus as well. And people who are genuine believers, they're always in with Christ. Christ in you, the hope of glory. You are in Christ. Nothing can separate you from that. That is a sealed situation in your life. But outside of true Christianity, true faith in Christ, there's this whole culture of fascination with Christ where Jesus comes in and out of vogue and gets lifted and forgotten over and over again in our culture. It's as if Jesus makes his triumphal entry past our culture and the culture has to decide once again, am I fascinated by Christ or am I rejecting him altogether? The History Channel will always give little episodes. You'll see Time Life magazine and different things in the newsstand or on your feed. You'll see things about Jesus this week. This is chronicled in our calendar as the... uh, it's the Passion Week. This is the time to think about Jesus in our culture, right? We pay homage to him just ceremonially and traditionally. Well, the masses will become fascinated with Jesus once again. 
And again, I don't want to pick on all the different cultural things that happen, but I know that there are fans of um, the chosen and, and those who are not fans of the chosen as far as media and, and watching that. You know what that is? That's, that's, it's media is what it is. It's uninspired media, and you do with it what you will. You can enjoy that, or you could say, you know, I, I don't like that, and that's a choice and a preference that you can make. Um, there are, you know, different Catholic dynamics, and it's funded by the Mormons and things to be aware of, but it is what it is. It's, it's media. It's, it's pageantry, and um, it's not the same as the Bible. There's really only one media that explains Jesus, and this is the inspired media of Jesus. Um, the, the, anything you see on a movie screen or even back to the old, you know, Charlton Heston, you know, miracles of, of the ocean divide, none of that compares with what really happened. Miracles are explained through scripture and the supernatural engagement of the Holy Spirit in our hearts that enlivens what we see, where we read by faith. That's how we learn about Jesus. That's how we know what he's like and what it means to be taught by him in our hearts by faith. You remember the trend that happened around the Passion of the Christ movie that Mel Gibson put out in, I think it was 2004. Mel Gibson, that great godly saint who's put all those movies out um, for our holiness and betterment, basically made a movie to do penance uh, and basically put the evangelical culture on edge where they had to make a decision whether they were going to join him in his Catholic penance or not. He's a Roman Catholic. He basically served a, you know, a transubstantiation communion um, every single day on the set to try to make the, the making of that movie a religious experience. It was his arm swinging the hammer literally as the actor. It was his arm that made the movie, but he was the one putting the nails in, supposedly, in that moment. That was him trying to pound out his own problem in terms of dealing with the guilt of his sin by making a movie people it was it was so gross and graphic it was an r-rated movie and the scourging scene and the cross scene was uh, meant to do that to to gross out everybody and and make it make you feel bad during that time i remember being in little rock talking to one of the elders there and he was saying oh what a wonderful movie it's so great and isn't it wonderful and i was thinking well it, it is what it is it's media it's media, and it's also filled with Roman Catholic theology and matriology in terms of blood going on Mary's face, and what does that mean, and we're supposed to be ceremonially swept into these things in pageantry. But that's not the Bible. It's not the same thing, and it really was a guilt trip on evangelicalism. I remember John MacArthur was receiving pressure where, should I write a book? I need to speak to this and not, you know, he was reacting to the movie. John Piper did the same thing. Books were coming out. People were having to make decisions related to Hollywood. That just seems inverted to me. It seems wrong. Jesus is who we know him to be from Holy Scripture. And I know him because he lives in my life and he communicates with me through the text, the inspired Holy Spirit, inspired text. And the Spirit of God prompts me to know him and enlivens me to know him as he is revealed in Holy Scripture. Second Corinthians chapter 4, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God is, this, is seen in the face of Jesus Christ. The lights turn on by hearing the truth. That's the point of 2 Corinthians 4. So where am I going in all of this? Well, 
with all the sentimentality in our culture surrounding Christ, don't miss Jesus. With all the masses saying, praise the Lord and Jesus is real, don't miss Jesus. Don't make Jesus into the ultimate social justice warrior like Christian culture is doing. Um, The Dalai Lama did this. He's a great um, social justice warrior, isn't he? The Tibetan Buddhist, he commends Christ. Sounds like a believer here. He goes, in my readings of the New Testament, I find myself inspired by Jesus' acts of compassion. His miracle of the loaves and fishes, his healing and his teaching are all motivated by the desire to relieve suffering. Social justice. Unlikely people like actors and um, you know, great famous people, scholars, actresses, politicians, they'll give glory to Christ often not knowing him for who he really is, not knowing what it means to bring the cornerstone, the chief cornerstone, the stumbling block into the conversation. Jesus himself is the dividing line between heaven and hell. You receive him or you reject him. That's Jesus. That's Jesus. Well, there's no bigger picture of fickle faith and fascination with Jesus than at Jesus' triumphal entry. The crowds swell and praise the Lord, but is it true faith or is it fascination? Is it inspiration that's superficial or is it true transformation? That's the question. That's the question you should ask in your own heart. Am I a true follower of Jesus? Because there are two kinds of worshipers. Those who worship Jesus, and watch this, those who worship yourself, right? You, you just, all idolatry is, is, is mirror reflecting attributes of ourselves back to ourselves so we can worship ourselves. That's the Greek pantheon of all the different gods that are made with human-like characteristics to explain how we can worship ourselves. Secular humanism versus worship to the Lord. We worship the lamb. There's two kinds here pictured. Follow as I read Luke 19, beginning at verse 28, Jesus' triumphal entry. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one else has sat. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. Let's stop there. Two kinds of worshipers present at the triumphal entry, the true worshipers that claim Jesus as Messiah. This is where we're going to talk about the remnant. There's always the remnant. Even with the Jews, you have the 144,000 that are saved before the end gathering of all who will believe in the end. You have a remnant in Christianity. You have big Eva. You have a lot of people who claim Jesus in big evangelicalism, right? World church. 
And then you have true followers. It's amazing the intricate detail that's being explained here by Luke. And Luke is a physician, the detail specialist, the precisionist, talking about um, two disciples, nondescript, in a specific place at a specific time. And they're going on a a very detailed behind-the-scenes, off-book mission. Before things go public, things are very private. And that's how we are as a church. Think about it. The chairs that are set up, moving around. You're coming in from different areas of Anchorage. Why? We're gathering in private to worship the Lord together, to be a part of his bigger plan that he's put together by divine design. That's the picture here of the disciples that are due east of Jerusalem. Jesus has had a ministry that's been full for three years He's gone up, back and forth between Jerusalem and Galilee. He was baptized around Jerusalem at the Jordan. And he he also had a big part of his ministry around the Sea of Galilee, some 78 miles due north walking from Jerusalem. You have uh, his judgment sermons we've been learning about in Matthew 11. And then his grace sermon that he gives, calling these cities who were indifferent to Jesus. They were indifferent to the mighty works of God that were being displayed around them. And then he was calling them to believe. And then now he's coming uh, in this last sort of private moment. He's been with the, the 12. He's been ministering to them, giving them words of wisdom. And then he's getting ready to come in on a... He's cut the brake line type mission where you're coming in to Jerusalem as the Lamb of God, and that's it. He's burned the ship, uh, the brake lines are cut, and he's going in as the Lamb of God on a lethal mission during Passover. That's what's happening. That's the stage that is set here by Luke. He's, Jesus is in Bethany, he's in Bethpage, this area that uh, is on the Mount of Olivet. This is the same mountain Jesus will return on one day, as Zechariah 14.4 says, that he'll stand on the Mount of Olives, that he'll split it in two from east to west by a wide valley. And so he's right there. This is uh, A.D. 30. He was probably born, you know, he's 33. Don't get confused on the date system there. But this is Passover week. He's born three, Jesus is born three years B.C. basically. And, and then this is A.D. 30. It's the Jewish month called Nisan. It's Friday. All of Israel is slaying thousands upon thousands of Paschal lambs. And none of these lambs can save you. None of these lambs can atone for your sin, not one bit. And all of them, though, represent the one lamb who can. It's amazing to think about. God has synchronized this perfectly in his calendar events, all of what's happening. And Jesus is going to come down the mountain from Bethany, from Mount Olivet, on this foal of a donkey, and then he's going to go back up and ascend into Jerusalem. That's what the terrain does. So just to give you some background to what's going on, he's the Lamb of Lambs. The 12 were bold, but cautious in this time. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, they lived in Bethany. They lived in this area. And so they were probably just practically giving Jesus some cover before he's going into Jerusalem. He had ascended up that mountain at Mount Olivet, 3,000 feet, some 3,000 feet, 17 miles up. And now the mountain is adjacent to the temple, kind of looking down on Jerusalem over a valley that he's going to descend down on. Jesus is very deliberate. This is not haphazard. This is God's sovereign timetable. And it's, uh, it's perfectly choreographed with Passover. Just don't miss that. 
That's why Jesus at certain points would say, you know, it's not time for me to be, um, you know, killed. It's not my time yet. I'm working according to the Father's calendar because he's fulfilling this with exacting precision. 1,400 years earlier, you had the, um, the exodus of the Israelites, and they, they came, you know, by, by the Passover where, where the death angel passed over and they were saved because they had slaughtered that lamb and, and they avoided God's curse. They were, they were protected and covered because the blood was splattered on the doorpost and they were saved and delivered through that. And they're commemorating this with these sacrifices now. And Jesus is coming. Well, how is he going to come? He's not coming triumphantly. He's actually coming as a humble lamb. He's going up to Jerusalem and it says, verse 29, when he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany, the mound is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, two nondescript disciples, saying, go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. It's going to be an animal that's never been broken, never been ridden, never been sat upon. It is set apart for Jesus. All these details matter. He sends them out to fulfill precise prophecy. What's the prophecy? Well, earlier in Zechariah, not only does it in Zechariah 14 predict where Jesus is going to land when he returns, but in Zechariah 9.9, earlier in that prophecy, it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. It's amazing. That's exactly what Jesus did. It's what he was making the plan to be able to do. An earlier prophecy in Genesis 49 is amazing because if you back it up, you go to Zechariah, but then you back it up to Genesis where Moses wrote, he wrote about Jacob. Remember Jacob and Esau. Jacob is also named Israel. He had 12 sons and 12 sons were the 12 heads of the tribes of Israel. They, they were the progenitors of the 12 tribes of Israel. And at the end of Jacob's life, you, you have a scene where Jacob is praying over his brothers. Remember, these were the brothers of Joseph who sold Joseph, Joseph out to be a slave in Egypt and then in the providence of God through rescue and through you know, God's rescue and Joseph's prophecies being fulfilled. He was elevated up to be the Pharaoh's viceroy and predicted the famine that was coming. And through that prediction and through the rescue, he was able to rescue his brothers up to Egypt and rescue um, his father as well. At the end of this time of Jacob's life, Genesis 49, 8 says this, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. (laughs) Some of the brothers were being cursed in this prayer, Reuben, Simeon, and Levi. But then you have Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub, and the prey from the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion and as a lioness who dares rouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and in his vesture the blood of grapes. Do you hear the precision of this prophecy? Not to open it all up, but 
you have the very clear mention of the donkey's colt to the choice vine, a vine that's going to burst like wine of the blood of grapes. This is all a picture of the cross. So Jesus' arrival on the foal of a donkey, on this colt, guess what? It was embedded in the subconsciousness of Israel. They were all thinking it and knowing it, but fascinated by it, connecting prophecy, Genesis, Zechariah, this is happening, but are we really believing? That's the question. That's the That's always the question. It's not just the question of our day, but it is the question of our day. It's one thing to put it all together. It's another thing to give your heart to Jesus, to see Jesus from Scripture and say, he's all I need, he's all I have, he's all I want. Well, these two disciples were sent on a mission, and then they come up to two owners who sacrifice for the Lord. So verse 32, so those who were sent away found it, just as he told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners, who are they? Well, it's Mr. and Mrs. Owner, said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. You want to stop there a second? It's interesting. They said they have need of it. So the owners go, well, here's the colt. Why? Because the Lord is working in these details, behind the scenes, prompting hearts. I think opening the hearts of the owners. Why not? Why not? They're in the story. I choose to believe they became believers, just like Lydia's heart was opened in Thyatira, right? Where Paul preached to her and the Lord opened the eyes of Lydia. The Lord probably opened the eyes of these owners. We say... How does the Lord work? When can people be, when and how can people be saved? Well, when the Lord wills, they're saved. It's by divine design. You just follow the Lord's mission. You're told, go get the donkey. How do we do that? Well, just say the Lord has need. Okay, I'll do that. I'll just follow what the word of God says for me to do and have conversations. And then the Lord opens blind eyes and people get saved. That's evangelism. We could have a six-week or six-month course on evangelism. Just follow God's word and talk to people. And people get saved. God opens blind eyes. Some sow, some water, and some reap. 1 Corinthians 3, 6 talks about that. Then several disciples set apart the Lord. So you have two disciples that are serving, two owners that are sacrificing, and then you have several disciples who set apart the Lord. And I said that as a forced, as with some forced language. It's um, setting the Lord apart. Verse 35, it says, they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt. They make a makeshift saddle. They set Jesus on it. They're setting him apart. The donkey here becomes like temple furniture. It's set apart. It's holy. This animal's never been ridden. It doesn't have a saddle. It's, it's got a wild nature, and yet it's perfectly still. And they lift Jesus up and set him on the animal. That's all ceremonially symbolic to say Jesus is holy. He is the Messiah. He is the Lord. They know who he is. You, they see him for who he is by the eyes of faith. And then they spread the cloaks on the road as he rode along. They're throwing their cloaks on the road. They want Jesus to ride along on, along the red carpet because he's due this glory. Listen to what Don Carson said about this unbroken animal. 
says, you can't ride an animal before it's broken, especially a baby donkey riding through a yelling crowd. Humanly speaking, no rider could do this in the midst of all that an unbroken young animal um, remains totally calm under the hands of the Messiah who controls nature, stills the storm, even at points... Um, gives peace to, will give peace to a consummated kingdom. Jesus is the Lord of all, and under his hand, nothing but harmony and peace comes about. The animal knows and loves the true master for who he is. This is a foreshadowing of the healing that'll, that's foreshadowed in Isaiah 11, where the wolf lays down with the lamb. So you have true worshipers, true worshipers behind the scenes. We're not trying to atone for our sins. We're not trying to make a name for ourselves. We're not trying to to be do-gooders, are we, to get saved? We're not trying to just join the hype. I mean, we could go to a big conference and get excited, and that can mean absolutely nothing in terms of our real state of heart with the Lord. I like going to conferences. I enjoy that stuff. I enjoy, you know, media and things like that. But that, that that's superficial compared to what, those people were experiencing. Think about the media hype surrounding the, uh, you know, the Oscars Will Smith debacle where he slaps Chris Rock, and I mean, we all kind of saw that. Well, what I saw after in aftermath was T.D. Jakes trying to unpack this with Denzel Washington and make a religious point about what had happened. Um, you know, it's trying to bring up superficial penance, superficial redemption. You know what the issue was? Is anger is sin, no matter. On either side of a slap, your anger is sin. And if you don't, if you're not born again, you're not right with God. The issue is getting beyond the superficial and diagnosing the heart. The heart has to be changed. Superficial worshipers. Look at verse 37. You say, How dare I call these people superficial? Well, we're going to read through the end of the chapter and we'll find out why. Verse 37 As he is drawing near, Already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice. Disciples here is not synonymous with believers. Some of them could be believers, but as the crowd swelled to the whole city of Jerusalem, not all of them are believers, and most, I would argue, are not. They begin to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Um, they're quoting a Hallel psalm. They're quoting scripture in Jesus' name. They're synchronized with the Passover that's happening. They're waving palm branches. They're joining in, and it's this swelling parade around Jesus. Is it true saving faith? It's with a loud voice. There's enthusiasm behind what is being said as Jesus is coming in on the foal of a donkey led by his mother. It's just this, this thing, the, the mother donkey, and, and he's, he's coming in. He's riding in like Solomon did on a mule, riding in like Jehu did when he took over for King Ahab. He's not riding on a war horse. He's coming as the Lamb of God, and you know they're sort of working this through, and they're saying, we're going to praise him as the war general, even though he's coming in with humility. They're saying Hosanna. So what, what's wrong with this? I mean, palm branches are being raised. And for the Jewish mind, that's a reflection back to um, 
the palm leaves that they made tents over in the, the wanderings of the wilderness when they were delivered from, from Egypt, Egyptian tyranny. They're out there and they would make these, uh, these lean-tos with palm branches. And so it was a sign of deliverance. And so they're saying, deliver us. But historically in culture, by that point, after the intertestamental period of the last prophet, you have 400 years of silence and darkness A lot of religion had been politicized. I know this is difficult for you to grasp, right, in our American culture, religion being politicized, but it had. And what people would do in the Jewish culture is when Caesar would come through and Rome would come through, armies would come through in victory, they would raise palm branches and say, glory to the king. Well, they were just following suit saying, we want a new king. And they were raised, they would run out in the fields and grab their branches and do this. They were fascinated. They were trying to tie it all together, but palm branches for coronation would soon be exchanged for thorns um, to crown their king. Hosannas would turn in to crucify him not long after they had raised the branches. It's fickle faith. Well, they ran out to see mighty works. I just want to make that point. Now, the indifference of the Galilean culture where they saw this gush of mighty works, this gush of revival, people being made whole. I mean, we've been preaching and learning about that from Matthew 11, that Jesus pronounced woe judgments on them for indifference. Here, this is the exact opposite effect, where instead of being hardened by overexposure, they're, they're actually hardened by the exposure of mighty works where they're going, wow, we want more. Um, it's not, oh, who cares? It's we want more magic tricks. We want our show. We want the circus to come to the count, Jesus. We, you raised Lazarus, so show us more. That's the heart of this crowd in Jerusalem. John 12 highlights this. You'll look there in verse 9. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. Maybe Lazarus came from Bethany. We know he lives there. Maybe he'll show back up. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. You catch that? You talk about political conspiracy. You have a whooped up crowd that wants to be fascinated by Jesus. We want Jesus and we want to see Lazarus too. And then the Pharisees are going, whoa, we can't have this swelling movement around Jesus. So we're going to snuff Jesus out. We're also going to snuff out Lazarus too, just in case Jesus pulled something off. We're going to kill it all because we can't have this movement. It's threatening us. None of this is a threat to Jesus though. So it goes on from there. It says, because on account of many, the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. It says, uh, the next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took palm branches to meet him. They're crying, Hosanna, blessed, be, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus found a young donkey. He sat on it. He said, fear not, Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on the colt. So it's quotes to Zechariah chapter 9. His disciples did not understand these things. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. So all of this is choreographed to synchronize and fulfill precise Old Testament prophecies. But the hearts 
that are, that are watching this either superficially or actually believing, all that is in the balance of what's really going on inside. The truth is on display. Jesus is on display. And pro- prophecy is being fulfilled. Everything's being validated and vindicated that this is the Messiah. But that doesn't mean the whole city becomes believers. The crowd, it says in verse 17, that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to bear witness. They were excited. The reason why the crowd went out to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. That's superficial talk. Pharisees are going, look, the crowd is so big. We are failing, so we need, to, we need to quell this crowd down. So much of the church is measured in terms of crowd sizes and events and stadiums that swell with people and participate around a feel-good message around Jesus, around a pump-up speech, a life coach message around Jesus. And crowds come to that, but that doesn't mean Jesus is there. That's not the media that he communicates through. He communicates through the word of God. But even these people were using the word of God to exalt Jesus. Psalm 8, 118, 24 to 26, verse 25. Save us, we pray. That's Hosanna. Verse 26. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. They're saying, save us now. But what's their motivation? I think their motivation was political. An unbeliever wanted Jesus to overthrow Rome and make life good now. A person who's coming to faith in Christ, instead of looking outward, they look inward and they look upward and they say, Lord, save me regardless of what's happening down here, regardless of how long I get to live down here. Save my soul for eternity. I see my sin and I need rescue, not from just the lion who's going to make things right down here, but I need to first reconcile, reckon myself with the lamb. I need to go to the lamb. To move from superficiality to the Lord. They wanted their kingdom and they wanted it their own way on their own terms. There's a sick sense of entitlement here. Well, okay, so you have a multitude that sings to the Lord. And then verse 39 takes an interesting twist. It's Pharisees censor the Lord. In verse 39, you have Pharisees, and I'm going to read this text here. You have Pharisees that are um, seeing that the crowds are acting superficial, and they're all frenzied up. And the Pharisees want to get in good with Jesus right now to stop this movement. They don't want there to be a religious right wing that takes over you know, their political and, and authority position. So they go up to Jesus and whisper G- to Jesus for him to calm the crowd down. As soon as I read, it says, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Stop there. Jesus is saying, listen, whether this is superficial or not, this has to be spoken over me. This is who I am. It's what I am. And as I said before, the break line had been cut. Jesus is going in. He's going in no matter what. He's fulfilling the prophecy of Luke 9, 9. And all of this is still grace. I don't know where the hearts of the people really were. Some were superficial, I would say most. But some believed. 
I'm sure. They're quoting scripture. They're saying, Lord, save us. There is sincerity that sometimes happens in the midst of superficiality. I guarantee you that some of you would say, I became a born-again Christian where I was at a Christian rally or a youth conference or a Christian concert or a Christian camp or vacation Bible school. There's a lot that's going on that's superficial, but the Lord has his people. He has his remnant. He calls people to himself to be saved. So it's important to not just eschew that and think, man, that's, that's not real. The Lord saves people. The Lord saved people, I think, that rallied and said, crucify him, where the Lord's on the cross and he says, you know, don't hold them. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Don't hold this sin against them. I mean, these are amazing statements on behalf of those who were mocking and, and jeering at Christ. And then later at Pentecost, many believe, thousands believe. So we don't know who the Lord is bringing to faith in Christ through this. This is still grace. It's dangerous, though, because to be superficial with Christ can harden your heart and turn on you. Well, the multitude sing and the Pharisees, they try to censor the Lord But then Jerusalem scorns the Lord. Look at verse 41. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, for now they are hidden from your eyes. What is Jesus saying there? He's saying, If you miss me right now, you're condemning yourself. Jesus is sobbing. He's not just crying a little bit. The language here is uncontrollable wailing and weeping. Jesus is falling apart on the colt. While he's riding in, he's weeping. Jesus does things that I don't expect all the time. You read and you expect him to say one thing or do one thing, and he does the exact opposite. Why? Why did he weep? It's because he saw inside the souls of the people who were singing on the outside, but their hearts were far from Jesus. It'd be like Jesus coming down here to earth, watching superficial worship, and seeing people in his mind's eye burning forever in hell. That's what he is doing here. He's predicting what's going to happen. Well, what's going to happen? Go on in verse 43. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. You missed it when Jesus came and it condemned you for a terrible fate that was coming. On A.D. 70, Titus, the Roman commander, laid siege to the city of Jerusalem. It was right in April. It was right during the time of Passover. He surrounded the city with Roman troops during the Passover feast, trapping thousands inside the city. He created Roman embankments around the city and suffocated it and strangled it by cutting the supply lines where no one could eat. Everyone was starving and complete in a complete panic until by fall when they came in and raised the city, which means turning the rocks over on top of itself. It was reduced to rubble. That happened in AD 70. That's what Jesus foresaw and was weeping over. He's saying, if you don't repent, when this catastrophe happens to you, you're not going to heaven, you're going to hell. Remember Matthew 7, 22 and 23. On that day, many 
will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? It's playing with fire. Telling you, playing Christianity is playing with fire. It's playing with hell fire. It's playing with eternal damnation fire. You can't play games with Christ. He sees through you. He sees in you. He knows what you're doing. He knows what you're thinking. He knows if you are his or if you are not. Jesus is the Lord over your life, whether you've given your life to him or not. Submit to the lordship that is already in place. He is Lord over your life. He is reigning. He is ruling. And he will determine where the sheep goes and where the goat goes. Who's the wheat and who are the tares? Who's of the truth and who's faking it? Lying to yourself. Repent of these things. Because one day in heaven, it says, Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. What's the difference between heaven and hell? What's the difference within this judgment? It's whether you genuinely know Christ or do not know Christ at all. Do you know him? Do you know this Jesus, the one that's revealed to us in Scripture? Well, there's a note of hope hope here in what happens. If you look at verse 43, it says, again, or I'm sorry, verse 45. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Don't stop there. Look at verse 47. And he was teaching daily in the temple. Stop there. What's Jesus doing? Jesus is the Lamb of God who comes in at the end of his journey. Mark's gospel, sorry, Mark's gospel account talks about how he looked around that evening. So he went into the temple and surveyed it. He looked in there. He wanted to see what was going on in the temple. Mark eleven eleven. it says, When he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So he looked. It was too late to do anything about it. But he saw that the, the temple had been commercialized. It had been commercialized. I know this is another big stretch, but can you imagine Jesus and religion being commercialized where people can make a buck on Jesus? That's what Jerusalem was doing. The temple became a marketing strategy where they were selling lamb offerings. Get your lamb offering. Get your dove offering. You know, it's Passover. I know, you know, it's last minute buy here. You know, that's what was going on. That's the money changing that Jesus dealt with. And he realized that everything was superficial. So he came in and drove out, verse 45, those who sold. He said, my house is a house of prayer. And you've made it a den of robbers. And then in verse 47, once it was cleaned out, he was able to teach. It was a holy place where he could teach, where he could bring the word of God. The glory of God had returned to the temple. Um, R.C. Sproul said there's a supreme irony here. In 586 B.C., Ezekiel saw the glory of God leave the temple. That's Ezekiel 10, 18. And it left the holy city to ascend to Bethany on the Mount of Olives. That's Ezekiel eleven twenty two through 25. So the glory of God at the end of the Old Testament period was, was excused. It, it, was, it left the temple. And it ascended out of Jerusalem onto Mount Zion or the Mount Olivet, where Jesus is going to return. 
And then the picture is that the glory of God is found in Jesus and the glory of God came back through the triumphal entry. Sproul says the triumphal entry, the one whom the scripture defines as the brightness of God's glory, descended from Bethany, the Mount of Olives, and entered the east gate of the holy city and went to the temple. Why? To bring accountability and to bring the truth. Accountability and salvation. Judgment and saving grace. Hope. That's where we find Jesus. Is it too late for people? When they've been superficial, well, look at what happens. The chief priests, verse 47, and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. All the religious leaders, let's kill Jesus. But they did not find anything they could do. Why? For all the people were hanging on his words. Can't kill Jesus because Jesus is winning people to himself. He's saving people with his word. Nothing can stop this process. Nothing can snuff out the advancement of the kingdom of God through the word of God that is marching on. Is Jesus your savior? Do you take him as lamb and as lion? Do you take him as Messiah and as king? Do you take him as a servant and as Lord? He's all of this to us. He's all of this. He saved us from our sins. And because of that, we have the hope of heaven now and throughout eternity. Choose you this day whom you will serve. Serve Jesus. Don't let him pass you by one more Easter occasion. See Jesus for who he is and follow him. Give him your whole life. You won't regret it, but you will if you don't.